Welcome to episode 99 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined once again by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Happy Wayne Gretzky almost to 100 episode, Courtney. Thanks, Ben. Happy day after Valentine's Day. Oh boy, you say that all saucily. I know. That's the only way I speak. You do. I'm, I'm, I, I'm a saucy character. Usually, yeah, sauce, especially when eating barbecue, I would say. <laughs> barbecue, definitely saucy. No, but, uh, but yeah, lovely weekend to you. Do you have a favorite sauce? Uh, yeah, barbecue or ranch. Barbecue. To the extent that ranch is considered a sauce and not a dressing, I think it is. I mean, they're kind of the same, the same thing, right? Sauce and I mean, dressing. In terms of in terms of consistency, no, I'm just talking about barbecue sauce versus ranch dressing. Pretty similar consistency, right? Pretty similar consistency, and I say that, and I will say that I pretty much use them the same way. Insofar as I use ranch the same way that I use barbecue sauce, not barbecue sauce the same way I use ranch, if that makes any sense. I don't pour it over salad and eat it, for example. <laughs> Although, I may have to start thinking about that one. <laughs> so on this week's show, we are going. it was a slower week than last week, thankfully, but we still have something to talk about. Results that happened in Rotterdam, Antwerp, Pattaya, and Sao Paulo, and Memphis. And we're going to talk to our friend... Raim Abulel, who is a reporter for Sport360 in Dubai, and talk to her about the state of the sport in the Middle East coming up on the tournaments there this week in Dubai and next week in Dubai and Doha and stuff like that. So it seemed like a good time. Then we'll take a number and we'll rant some more because Lord knows we're just full of feelings. Like Alizé. Yeah, like I said, yes, like, I'm full of emotions, good, positive not. emotions and negative emotions, but I let the people see it. Maybe not that full. <laughs> I cannot, I don't think that I have as many emotions as her. I just don't believe that. I really actually think that I do. <laughs> oh, it's, it's kind of frightening. I'm just going to throw that out there. Oh, just boy. Throw that out there. Oh, boy. This could be a messy show then. <laughs> yes. Let's look forward to it. So the biggest tournament last week on the men's side was Rotterdam, a 500 indoor European event won by Stan Wawrinka, who was weirdly seated lower than we're used to him being after losing his Australian Open champion points. He was down to being the number four seed in Rotterdam, ranked number nine in the ATP, and he pulled off quote-unquote upsets against Milos Ronic and Thomas Burdic to win the title. Uh, Courtney, what did you make of Stanislas the Manislas? Being champion sloss again. <laughs> so many slosses. So much sloss. So much slossing. Slossing here, slossing there. I mean, it's been a great start to the season for Stan Wawrinka. And I think that's yeah. probably one of the big question marks that we had for 2015 was, was whether or not Stan could be the man again after just the remarkable year that he had um, in 2014. Now he adds a ATP 500 to his list of accomplishments. It's like he's going through and like checking all the boxes of all the things that you're kind of like supposed to do as a top player to win. Yeah, I won my first slam. I won my first ATP Masters 1000. I won Davis Cup. Now I've got a 500. I got a bunch of 250s in my pocket. I got mean, a gold medal. Got a gold medal. All he needs is like the ATP finals. And he's he's kind of like he's like dominating the Monopoly board effectively yeah. uh, for a round. So, I mean, a very good win for him. You know, the win over Burdick. I mean, uh, to me, what was more significant about Rotterdam was – specifically Raonic and Burdick. Okay. Those two players, first of all with Raonic, still waiting for the guy to break through. 
Um, obviously, totally impressed by his performance in the final against Federer in Brisbane. I thought that was like Milos A plus and Milos 2.0 in a lot of ways. But ever since, pretty disappointing. I think getting picked apart by by Djokovic at the Australian Open, and then this time, you know, playing some pretty good tennis to get into the quarterfinals or semifinals, semifinals against Vavrinka, and then seven six seven six losing there two tiebreakers. You know, that's a pretty surprising result for for Raonic to get it into a breaker and, and not really come out ahead so that was a bit disappointing and then with Burdick I think I've I don't know if I've ever said it on this podcast but I know I've written it before here's a guy who is just the odd man looking in because he has these runs where he's incredibly dominant and he doesn't lose sets and he looks absolutely unbeatable and everything like that and then he gets to these finals or these big matches against that cadre of players, not the big four, but that like five, six, seven players that have kind of, you know, made a home of themselves amongst the elite for the last three, four years. And he somehow finds a way to collapse. That's what it, what's what we saw against Murray in Melbourne. Just, I mean, Burdick looked like he was playing unstoppable tennis and then yeah. takes that first set, mutters something. Murray somehow gets into his head and the dude just folds like a cheap tent. Um, and then, yeah, against Burdick, it was the same, or I'm sorry, against Favrinka in the final, it was the same thing. He takes that first set and he looks like he's absolutely smacking the ball and Vavrinka makes his move in the second set. And then Burdick is completely flat in the third set, drops, you know, falls back 4-1 uh, down, eventually obviously gets one of, one of those breaks back. But it's just a trend with him. He did it in Doha to start the season. He didn't lose a set going into the final, looked like the favorite, gets absolutely plastered by David Ferrer. I mean, this is what happens to him time and time again. And I just keep waiting for Burdick to be that guy. The game is all there. But, man, he just cannot break through. I mean, you that win over Rafa is going to be kind of the thing that people point to. But you throw that out. And it's just it's incredibly frustrating because his game is so good. It's so good. He's definitely something of an underachiever given how great he's been in flashes and just stringing matches together has always been an issue. And so, once again, he falls just short. One person who has done well stringing matches together lately is Andrea Pekovic in Antwerp, who, after her ridiculous Fed Cup heroics, went to Antwerp, saved eight match points in the first round against Allison Van Oitthank. Second round. In the second round, right, in the second round, and then went on to win the title eventually by a walkover in the final from Carlos Suarez Navarro. Pecco is back into the top 10, which is pretty cool, given how back when she was on the podcast for the first time as a guest just two years ago, she was out of the top uh, 100 by quite a ways and had a lot of doubts about whether or not she'd ever be able to come back. And the past uh, 10 months or so for her have been absolutely incredible. They have been. And and one of the things that, Players will tell you this all the time to the point that it's cliche. When you can win without playing your best tennis, that's when you build confidence. And I think that Petkovic would be the first to admit that she did not play consistently her best tennis. Um, In Antwerp, if you watched her matches, there were just moments where you're like, good God, like, you know, what are you doing? And getting a little too passive, not being aggressive enough, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But if you go back and you watch that, that that second round match against uh, Van Oitvink. I mean, you watch it the way that Petco affirmatively saved those eight match points. Those were not uh, misses necessarily, bad misses or chokes from uh, Van Oitvink. Uh, 
yeah, I mean, Petko stepped up. So that was that was pretty massive. And she had to grind her way through a lot of those matches this week. Um, and so it's it's kind of the utter irony, right? Like the player that you expect to be taxed. She looked like she was struggling with a back injury, I think, in the semifinal or quarterfinal. Looked really gassed and had every reason to be gassed after what she did. Fed Cup playing over, you know, five hours of tennis there. Um, and then over three hours uh, against Van Bank. She gets the walkover to the title. That's uh, that's tennis for you. Yeah, I gotta say she did look a little bit stiff in the in the semifinal against against Oliva Vestritsova, and so when I saw the score flash up this morning that it was retirement, at first I kind of assumed it was Petkovic who had retired, and like yeah. read it like three times to make sure I got it right before realizing that she had not, and that she had indeed won the title. So good for her. There were some fun other matches, and the Van Oerfink match especially. I felt bad for Van Oerfink because, well, especially as a ginger myself, it's hard not to <laughs> identify with this lady. And there are so few of us in professional tennis on any realm where it's just not meant for us. And I think it's appropriate that she had this great effort at an indoor tournament in her home country because, I mean, she's so pale. And I love that Allison Van Oitbank is your Lena. Kind of. She's like, (laughs) I see myself in you, Allison. Yeah, that's really true. You got to see it to be it, Ben. No, it's true. And even I guess there are other gingery people like, um, I guess, Jim Courier is famously... I guess Rod Laver was ginger too, but that was back when everything was in black and white, so the connection wouldn't have been there. Quite as strong. It's... Murray is like a kind of 50 50. Murray's similar to me. I'm not like that. I'm not Allison yeah, Van Oyfang exactly. level of gingery. Yeah, Murray goes, his hair color sort of shifts with the, with the weather. Yeah, and even still, he's like much too like big and hulking to be identifiable now. Golabev is sort of gingery. Anyway, it's, it's not that important. But yeah, it's uh, good to see good to see her doing well. And hopefully, she continues flying the the flag well anyhow <laughs> more thoughts on that <laughs> there are other great other great matches in this tournament were provided by alize cornet who i feel like has had a very strong 20 has had a great 12 months also since yeah. dubai last year where she shockingly made the final beating serena have you how and i guess was all of a shirts of it too she played in this tournament also has had a great 12 months and there that matchup was glorious for the emotions on display both of them together i guess how have they sort i feel like they've really sort of matured into and and i know cornet especially it's very polarizing a lot of people can't stand watching her but i feel like they've matured into something really quite remarkable in a sort of wine sense as their flavor profile has gotten more and more developed and unrelenting and appreciated yeah part of it is the appreciation i think obviously appreciation can grow over time where you just kind of don't have a visceral knee-jerk reaction to a player anymore. You kind of accept their body of work as being what it is and have a little bit more of an intellectual reaction. But I think that it cannot be ignored that their tennis is far more entertaining now than it was, you know, two, three, four, five years ago. Stritzova especially. Stritzova especially. I genuinely enjoy watching her play tennis now. She's added kind of just a bunch of different elements to her game, far more aggressive, taking the ball early when she's playing the right way, getting to the net. And same with Cornet. When Cornet, well, Cornet is kind of funny both ways because when she's playing aggressive tennis and she's getting herself to the net, it's like so beautiful to see. It's like French women's tennis at its kind of best in a lot of ways. And then when she's falling back and playing far too passively, you get these opportunities to watch her just run, scamper around and play defense, which can be entertaining as well. So when your tennis is good, I think that so many other things are forgivable. You know, but if you're just going to be an absolute head case on the court, but your tennis is crap to watch, it's 
obviously much easier to dislike you, right? Because then you're just nothing but a drama queen. And I think both of them do it in a way that seems to be really, really self-focused or like definitely not trying to throw the opponent off and not like making a scene for the sake of just being a jerk. Neither of them seems at all jerky in the way they do it. Um, Who would you say are the players that do seem to make a scene to throw players off? I mean, like who comes to mind? Rodionova is the first one that comes to mind. Uh, yes. Um, that's, in that's terms a good of somebody call. who just constantly is whining and just really has this huge negative pow of the match and just seems to just try to be bringing everyone else down to her level of, yeah. of mental chaos. Yeah. Yeah. That's the main that's person who comes to my mind for that. Okay. Um, maybe Fanini does too a little bit. Fanini, yeah. I, see, I feel like, tries to hijack the match with some of his theatrics in a way that. Cornet and, and Bezos, I think, just sort of naturally are that way. And so it's I think that both of them, having them both, uh, she's in the top 20 now, Bezos, I think, with this run to the... I know, and I think that if you don't, if you recall, we had a discussion, not online, but offline about Bezos a couple of weeks or a few weeks ago in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And I made the argument that she was playing top 20 tennis. I'm just throwing I think you put her really high in the power. You were doing, we were talking about your power rankings and you had her like... Up around 11 or 12, and I was like, whoa. No, I had her top 15. Okay. I had her top 15. Very impressed with just the way she's, I mean, just the tennis in and of itself, separated from all of the dramatics. The dramatics are just icing on the cake. Yeah. They are amazing. I love them. They make me want to tune in just to see what's going to happen next. But but if you haven't, and uh, I highly recommend people go back and listen to our episode from last year where we interviewed Alize Cornet because she embraces all of it she owns up to it if you tell her she's dramatic on court she's like yep and uh yeah she 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 doesn't run away from that side of things for sure very cool um to wrap up the rest of the results from the week uh kenny shikori won in memphis beating three americans in the second quarterfinal and semifinal match uh ryan harrison austin krychek and sam query losing the first set in each of them winning in the third all three times and then beating Kevin Anderson in the final. Nothing unexpected from Kay, I think. A remarkable number of medical timeouts, as per usual. I was thinking that if Kay ever got asked the question, like, oh, what would you be doing if you weren't playing tennis? He'd just say, like, I should, I would get a job where, like, there was a really good health care plan. I kind of <laughs> feel like I see him with that constantly, even though he's, you know, more and more not pulling out as much. Just this, like, constant doctor presence with Kay is kind of remarkable. We did see the green ATP trainer bag quite a bit. I mean, to be fair, a lot of those weren't medical timeouts. Some of it was just to tape up this or tape up that. It happened during the length of a changeover, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, uh, the trainer was courtside for sure and should remain courtside for every Kei Nishikori match. But yeah, I mean, just the idea that Kei Nishikori is like a dominant player in Memphis is is amusing to me because that's a tournament. Obviously, it's indoor hardcore tournament. There's tons of big servers that are there and he's not lost a match there for the last three years he's only lost once there in his career played it four times so yeah it's uh it's impressive for our buddy nick mccarville there were seven japanese reporters in memphis for k no way yeah you, that's amazing that's pretty, i didn't see yeah, that that's yeah. pretty remarkable so the k he's like the beatles for them he i mean he's the beatles everywhere i mean he it was always really funny because in the australian open press room there's the main desk which you walk past when you walk through the entrance and the australian open is really weird about the fact that when players practice on labor 
or Margaret Court Arena, you actually have to be escorted to go watch. You can't just like roll in by yourself, uh, which is frustrating. It's the only slam to do this. So they announce it and and like all the photographers and written reporters have to go and like wait to be escorted in. And it was I would always like walk into the press room and there would just be be this entire army of Japanese people like standing at the thing. I was like, okay, must be practicing in about 10 minutes. But the presence, I mean, this is bigger than Chinese press. Oh, for sure. For sure. Without even, I mean, it's not even close. I think Japan um, probably has more media, it's just yes. the free media than China. For sure. Big part. But it's it's pretty insane. Yeah, um, and they they also like the way they cover them is also really intense. Like they go notebook in hand to like all of his practices during a tournament and like watch his practices, see what he's doing. It's very very microscope in a way that very few other players get. Yep. And uh, he's coping with it so far. He's got a got a guitar in Memphis, so. All is well that ends well for him so far. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that grows. I remember even at the U.S. Open final last year, there were so many, like, Japanese TV crews who like they clearly, like, flown in the night before, like, doing, like, live shots outside the stadium and stuff. It's pretty Kane cool. is a big deal. He's a big freaking deal. It's really, I mean, people need to, I mean, especially I think for us, you know kind of who's a big deal by, like, their press presence. Yeah. Like, like Andy Murray. Yeah. I mean, he's single-handedly is the entire British tennis meal ticket like meal ticket like I can't even imagine what tennis would look like if Andy Murray was if there was no Andy Murray yeah there'd be a lot fewer reporters for sure there'd be a lot fewer English-speaking reporters English-speaking coverage would really take a massive nosedive um so in a lot of ways thank goodness for Andy Murray but um yeah, I mean, Kani Shikori, just the Japanese presence is massive. Simona Halep, I mean, the amount of Romanian press has been noticeably noticeably more than before, yeah. I think. Conversely, on the opposite side, for the first time ever at a Grand Slam in Australia, I saw a Belarusian reporter. Oh, that's rare. I have never seen one before. Yeah, that's super rare. So, they really huh. are. And with the Caroline, back when she was number one, she had her like little army of like four or five, yeah, five Danish, six, yeah, Danish. five Danish. And then when, she, and the, yeah, and then when she stopped being that, <laughs> yeah, Danish, uh, it was maybe one or two now, and that's it. And um, so you can kind of tell with some of the smaller countries where they they really they don't have an entire core of people like a, a United States or France or Spain. Those are kind of the three countries that I can think of where we kind of have an army of media that because you have an army of players, yeah, Germany, you know, so. Yeah. And Germany, right. That's a pretty consistent group of people. But for everybody else, it's almost like stock market. Yeah. You know, when it's up, when it's high, everybody's fat cat, everybody's rolling in. And when the stock drops, then no one's sending anybody. A quick shout out also to um, the other, the veteran titleist this week at the smaller tournaments in Sao Paulo. Pablo Cuevas won his third title in eight months, which is pretty weird and under the radar. And Daniela Hantukova. Still going strong after all these years, still like working so hard and believing so much. She's like has her best results right around the corner. Bless her. But she still won this week in Pattaya, yep. beating Isla Tomjanovic. So solid results for them. Most definitely, and not easy conditions in Pattaya City. Incredibly humid, incredibly hot. Many players have have told some told me some legendary stories about just the conditions and how difficult they are so pretty great and very nice run for Isla Tomjanovic first WTA final nice really hard fought win over Monica Puig in the semifinals Mm -hmm. so for a player who we kind of don't talk about as much simply because the game is there but the consistency is not results have been there yeah exactly for her to put together a a week of solid results and she only lost 6-4 in the third against Hantukova so um yeah, that that was very nice to see from the Aussie Croat. 
there you go. Croat Aussie. Croat Aussie, yeah. Yeah. All right, we're going to do a new segment. Courtney, what, how are we naming this segment? If you can explain the etymology of this, because you'll do a better justice than I will. I don't think that I will do a better justice of it, uh, justice of it, uh, of it, for it, whatever. Buy it. Uh, buy it. There we go. Buy it. Um, but yes, we're introducing a new segment onto the NCR podcast called Slay Drag. <laughs> because we are such it's, fans of these words. We love these words you don't even know. Yeah, basically the purpose of this segment is to identify the player who was basically won the week had the best week ever uh who slayed Slayed. as you will slay um and also the player who got dragged this week drag so (laughs) for um, those of you who have no idea what we're talking about like the people who tweet this way in general about tennis and other things who say like yes slay drag it sounds so demonic the way they do it (laughs) it's just like it's this weird violent guttural like like at like the like oscars be like yes helen Mirren slay it's like what are you <laughs> what what's going on here yeah i'm trying to find the tweet that i found about from this totally random girl talking about how she wanted how to train your dragon two to slay frozen <laughs> And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? It was amazing. And the reason that I found it is because one night I was just randomly (laughs) searching on Twitter for the words slay and drag. And all I would do was change the number of A's in each of them (laughs) in different combinations to see what tweets would come up. And I found this tweet. But um, yeah, Ben and I love those two words. They come up a lot in tennis. Certain fan bases use them pretty exclusively it's a, but it's a very williams fan base word we can say it's a, it's a very it's a very williams serena specifically fan, serena specifically i was gonna say let's not serena. drag <laughs> venus's fans into it it's a serena thing and to be fair serena slays and drags a lot of folk <laughs> so, so it makes sense so who is this week's slayer courtney this week's slayer is luca vani so Luca Vanni, number 149, a player from Italy, 29 years old, never won an ATP tour level match before this week, had only played his first ATP tour level match this year at 29 years old. Luca Vanni goes and as a qualifier wins six matches in eight days uh, to make his first ATP final in Sao Paulo. He loses in the third set to Paulo, Pablo Cuevas, but that is one hell of a week, Luca Vanni. And uh, we salute you. He was such a class act about it as well. The guy was jeered in really kind of in terms of tennis crowd, non-Davis Cup tennis crowd antics, really some of the uglier stuff that you kind of see, you know, cheering double faults, openly yelling during tosses, umpire not doing anything to control at all. So the fact that he and then after that would be he would kind of thank the crowd, um, (laughs) maybe a little sarcastically, but still he was very adorable about it. But pretty neat. And he got a special exemption entry into this week's tournament in Marseille, which is which is great for him. Long flight. But long flight but that's a good amount of cash um he's coming back to europe anyway yeah sure uh yeah so um he definitely slayed the week <laughs> so i one more thing on luca vani luca vani um was actually someone who when i was doing the thing for the photos in i'll show you nothing qualifying i was talking to someone who works for the itf one of the communications people and they were looking at the list of like names of quality so like i've never heard of this person and they're seated in qualifying who are they and it was luca vani Oh, this wow. person who was like randomly, who's like yeah. knows a lot about tennis and like and gets like all the Tons. results. Because Luca Vani was like seven forty something in the world this time last year, 
really fast rise for him. We did manage to get a photo of him, and he was the MVP on Racket Rally this week for having delivering the most points for lowest cost, so good for him. Also, shout out to Joey Hanf, Tennis Nerds, who won the No Challenges Remaining League this week. So good for him. Very nice. On the strength of not Vanny, I don't think. Because no one owned Vanny. Like, literally yeah. no one out of our 3,000 members owned Luca Vanny. So, stealthy guy. Way to slay. The dragged player of the week, by consensus of us, was Jeannie Bouchard. Yeah, she got dragged. <laughs> Jeannie Bouchard lost in her first tournament with Sam Sumick, which is a very high-profile sort of event for her. She lost after winning the first set, got beaten pretty badly in the second and third by Mona Bartle who can play some pretty great peak tennis, must be said. And she was playing pretty well. Mona, Mona is one of those players who, when she's on, you just kind of have to hope that, wait for her to go off. And she didn't really against Jeannie. And so it was an early loss for her in her first big tournament with Sumik. Uh, she then pulled out of Dubai with some sort of arm injury after getting a wild card that seemed to come pretty late, you were saying, Courtney? Well, there, there's some, some people were telling me that the Canadian press had reported that Dubai had agreed to give her the wild card maybe back in January or in early February, but it wasn't announced until Friday before the tournament. Jeannie Bouchard then withdraws um, on Saturday. So once it's announced, that's when at least my understanding, and maybe my understanding is completely wrong on this. I will totally accept that as a possibility. But my understanding is that once the, the wild card is announced, then you can, I mean, you can't like just take it back. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's Jeannie's wild card. And then she pulls out. And then at that point, um, I think the position was taken by a lucky loser. I do wonder, and again, I'm totally speculating here, what would have happened if, if it was either communicated to the tournament or whatever it was that she wasn't going to be able to take that wild card because of an arm injury before it was it was announced, and then that wild card could have gone to somebody else. But at the same time, my understanding is that the top 20 wild card has to go to a top 20 player, and then if not, that it goes to lucky loser. I don't know. Anyways, there's all these W tables, but it was like a. But needless to say, it was a weird. It was just weird timing, and optically, it looked odd that she lost on Wednesday. So that would have been two days, and then the wild card is announced on a Friday, and then she withdraws with an injury on Saturday. I mean, just common sense makes you wonder, well, if you had an arm injury and you didn't intend to play Dubai, how does that not get communicated to the tournament before and therefore that announcement not be made? I don't know. It was a little odd. Speak, but... Speaking of timing, <laughs> there was a tweet that came out very, very shortly within an hour after her losing to Mona Bartle from Victoria Azarenka, which uh, says level of excitement right now on a scale of one to ten is about a 100 and then laughing until crying emoticon do we <laughs> Azarenka <laughs> later said that she was just excited about a movie but i for one don't buy that i do you do this is where yeah this is where we actually differ i think we were talking about this a little bit before offline that you kind of like you saw it as an attempt of a attempt to walk back the tweet initially uh i i don't know i actually kind of believed it just because i was sitting there waiting i was like dude like her mentions must be blowing up like how is she not immediately tweet out within 30 minutes of that tweet like whoa not what i meant you guys like etc cetera, etc cetera. and i was kind of like oh maybe it's because she was actually in the movie <laughs> so and she had her phone off but yeah i don't i don't know but i it could be the other way i don't know well, so why do you think that it was just the timing of it i mean out of nowhere she hasn't been she's been totally radio silent as far as i know on the sumic thing and then genie top seed in antwerp gets blown out in the second and third sets of her first match and a gleeful tweet comes from Azarenka. I kind of think where there's smoke, yeah. there's fire here. But only she knows. 
It's only she knows. And um, and it's interesting. I mean, going back to Jeannie, she gave her first press conference since pairing with Sumik. She told reporters that Sumik approached th- or no, uh, that her trainer, Scott Burns, had heard that Sumik was no longer working with Azarenka. And so they approached him. And that's kind of how the coaching relationship was established. Yeah, I think that that's probably well, I, I, I believe that's what happened. Uh, but I think that it's a lot more complicated okay. than that, uh, based on some of the things I'm hearing. So I just think it's interesting because just kind of watching Twitter traffic sometimes about the whole thing, there's, you know, almost this uh, kind of reminds me a little bit of the Novak Andy Murray situation or even like any sort of like Federer Novak situation or whatever, where, you know, the players come in, they say certain things and then you have, you know, people who read those things and they take it as though that player sat under oath and told you the truth um, and wasn't just talking to, you know, be, polit- you know, not politically correct, but handle things in kind of a, in public relations mode, I suppose. So, yeah, I mean, I do think that that that, yeah, I mean, Sumik wasn't working with the uh, Ozrank anymore. And that's kind of how everything worked out. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everything's cool and everybody's happy about it. and Everything's cool with everybody else. I don't think that beneath the surface, that's the case at all. So it's uh We'll see how that turns out. I'm still convinced that it's going to be an Indian Wells second rounder. <laughs> I hope so. I really hope so. It'll be fun. <laughs> Tennis has been good delivering those sort of draws lately. So keep it up. <laughs> there you go. Let's just, it would be, be fun. Ready. Next for you on the show, we have an interview or a conversation I had with our friend Raim from Sport360 about tennis in the Middle East and the tournaments coming up there. So Courtney was not here for this, so you're not going to hear her for a few minutes, but she'll be back afterwards. So enjoy the chat with Reem, and we'll be back on the other side. Very pleased to be joined here by Reem Aboulel, who is a reporter for Sport360 in Dubai. You may know her from Twitter, where she wears a hat. Do you still have the hat picture, Reem? <laughs> I still, yeah. yeah. I still have the hat it's picture. An, it's an iconic hat picture, I must say. <laughs> When I met you the first time, I'm pretty sure you were wearing the hat, and I knew who you were. <laughs> you know, you're not the only one. Every time I show up at a tournament and I'm wearing a hat, people say, oh, you're the hat girl. <laughs> there you go. Well, we wanted to talk to you here because, first of all, because you're awesome and we know you from around the tour, but also because tennis is coming to your hood, as you say, <laughs> for the next few weeks in Doha and Dubai. Let's just sort of get a little get-to-know-you You've been living in Dubai for four years now? Yep. So what has that been like, and what is the sort of profile of tennis and covering tennis there and from there? Like, what is it like being a tennis reporter from Dubai? Even though you're (laughs) Egyptian originally, obviously. Yeah. Um, Obviously, it's really exciting. I'm lucky, actually, to be a tennis journalist here because we get some really good tournaments, whether it's exhibition tournaments like the one in Abu Dhabi, or recently the IPTL, and with the ATP and WTA tournaments here, and I also go to the ones in Doha. So I'm pretty much busy a lot. Um, There's also a bit of a local tennis scene, but it's mainly expats who are playing here. There's a few ITFs, very, very few, way less than you would expect. Like There's barely like three or four in the calendar. Hmm. And there's a couple of junior ITFs as well. So uh, the local scene can be much, much busier. Uh, but in terms of international tournaments, it's uh, it's exciting. Well, sort of compare the tournaments, I guess, because you have four, well, no, I guess five main ones. There's Dubai, men and women's, Doha, men and women, and then Abu Dhabi, the exhibition 
there, which mm-hmm. is big. And I guess you had IPTL mm-hmm. last year as well for the first time. So how do, how are the sort of what are the profiles of those relative events to each other? The ATP 500 tournament in Dubai for me, I would say, is like the the highest profile one in terms of the attract uh, the it attracts a lot of people. It's it's very well run and it's basically the hottest ticket in town. It's so difficult, both for men and women, but mainly the men's. It's the hardest ticket to... They sell out in the first five minutes. Mm. And because the stadium isn't huge as well, it's really, really difficult to get tickets uh, for the men's one in Dubai. I kind of feel in Doha, they sell out for the quarters and semis and final, or they claim that they do. But I never got the sense that it was like complete full house in Doha the way it happens over here. Right. Uh, so that's just in terms of people showing up. Obviously on TV, the, the corporate area is the one that's always on TV. So people always think that Dubai is never a sellout, but there's it's only because they're showing that part with like the Lacoste seats and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But in general, no, it's, it's very well attended. The Abu Dhabi one is amazingly attended because simply it's it's just... There's no other tournament like this in the world because it is an exhibition, but for some reason the players take it seriously just because it's the the way that it's set up and because it's in the beginning of the year and they want to have a couple of good matches before they actually go and start their season. So they they put in a, the players put in a lot of effort and at the same time the access is crazy. Yeah. Like it's such a cozy tournament. All the practice courts are like you don't even need to pay a ticket to go and watch someone to, uh, practicing. And and there's just six players, and they're usually six of the top ten. So you can imagine, you have someone like Rafa or Novak just practicing for three, four days straight, and you can just go and sit front row and watch them practice. Hmm. So I find it a very exciting tournament, honestly. Another event you had in Do- in Dubai recently was IPTL. What was IPTL like, Ray? To be honest, I was really disappointed. Okay. Because I had, I mean, I I was I didn't really watch it much on TV in the in the the legs before Dubai, but I kind of got the sense that especially with India and Manila that it was like packed for full mm-hmm. house, and which is amazing because that was that's their goal. Their goal is to go to places that don't necessarily get a lot of live tennis and and show the people what it's all about. And when it when it came to Dubai, there was barely anyone there no one showed up Mm. and it was sad it was sad because for example you even someone like pete sampras he's never ever ever been to dubai so imagine any tennis fan who lives here will get to see pete sampras for the first time ever and they didn't even know about it like the, the the marketing for it was so poor for whatever reason i'm not really sure uh so nobody knew about it. Yeah, I think, the, for yeah. example, that was the thing with uh, the other places like India and Manila. They never get tennis. And mm-hmm. so there's this huge bubbling excitement. And for Dubai, you guys get tennis all the time. Exactly. That, that, that was a bit that, that's a I wouldn't say it's a problem because obviously the IPTL is very different. But yeah, people are spoiled here in a way where you get the best golfers, the best tennis players. You, you, we have everything here. So for whatever reason, they didn't manage to explain to people how different this was going to be. It was also held in a very remote location. Like it's a beautiful venue. It's it's actually a swimming pool and it's they covered it and had a tennis court on top of it. 
And I love that place, but I know how far it is. And I know how people here are used to everything being so close. I mean, by far, it's like a half hour drive, mm. which isn't far. But in, in Dubai standards, it's kind of far. Yeah. So um, it's just a bunch of factors that didn't really add up together to, to bringing people there. So it was a real shame, especially, I'm sure even for the players, because this is like the last leg. So they kind of, they wanted to finish with a bang and there was no bang. No. How about the format? What was the format like um, in terms of the, the all the gimmicks? To be honest, I didn't mind uh, the gimmicks at all, but... The the whole point of the IPTL is it's supposed to be shorter, but I did end up feeling every day that it I did I I still had to sit courtside for six hours yeah. because you have two matches a night. So I thought that the ideal thing would be just scrap one of them, especially that every day only the second one was the exciting one. Yeah. For whatever reason, the the second one was always the better matchup or something. So. Each match is three hours. You have two back to back. It's still six hours. So I don't know. There's it. I still felt that there was a lot going on, uh, and maybe it should be a bit less. Yeah, no, that's know. the thing. Even with World Team Tennis here, which is sort of equivalent, the games or points are quicker, but like the actual whole night takes like three and a half hours. Mm. No, short. six is a lot. Yeah, that's if you're six much. is a lot. But the one thing I. That wasn't really overhyped is how much the players are loving it. The players are like obsessed with just being part of a team. Yeah. And I, I would, I, I went to the hotel several times just for interviews and other stuff. And it, it's funny how they were only having dinner with their team. Like they would, they wouldn't have dinner. Like you wouldn't find someone from from the Manila team go have dinner with someone from the Dubai team. You Interesting. Know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They were all like in their close circles. But then maybe after the dinner. You can see them a little bit hanging out and stuff, but um, they they just loved it to the extent that they actually asked Pupati for for next year to to stick to the same teams, hmm. even though that wasn't the plan to begin with. Bupati said that what if more teams are add more franchises are added? You can't have all the top guys in the other teams. Yeah. You have to spread them out. But the players literally went and told him, "We want to like the UAE Royals want to stay being the UAE Royals, the same players and everything." So. Um, I don't know what they're going to do. I know for a fact they're at least adding one more team next year. So I mean this year. So I don't know what they're going to do about that. Cool. Now, what what is the sort of perception, I guess, obviously, um, this is something that the WTA talked about when they put the championships in Doha, is that they sort of wanted to expose, I guess, women's sport to that part of the world. Mm-hmm. How is How is women's tennis and women's sport in general, I guess, treated? in in those areas because i know obviously with being all predominantly muslim countries people might not be Mm. sure how that works out to be honest i don't think uh, i don't think it bothers anybody at all Mm -hmm. um that there's like i i mean okay we have to differentiate in this part of the world they accept a lot of things but at the same time you're not gonna find uh, many local female tennis players okay so so they're okay with other people doing certain things but they won't necessarily do it that's right because so, I, I can't remember there ever being even local wild cards in those tournaments yeah honestly there's one girl from oman which is like from the gcc area oh al napani is that right exactly fatman nabhan yeah. she's the one who always gets the wild cards because really she is the only girl from the gulf region who's even ranked yeah. There's nobody else even in the rankings. Uh, and she, 
um, she's a very cool girl. She actually, she's pretty talented. But for example, uh, whenever we need to use a picture of her, she always calls me up and says, please make sure you don't print a picture of me in my skirt. Like just cut, cut half of my body. Just mm. because she knows that the perception she does. Obviously, she's from a big family. Everyone knows who she is. And she doesn't want anyone to go and say, oh, look, she's. Although she does wear, she usually wears a short skirt and everything, but she'd rather not be photographed in it and have that photograph all over the world. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So there's, there's things that she needs to, to, to deal with. But at the same time, I feel that people like tennis in this part of the world. Obviously, there's so many people who live here who aren't from here. And those typically show up more for the tournaments. But I do feel that in Doha compared to Dubai, the, the tournament there has done a lot more for the local tennis scene than mm-hmm. the one in Dubai has done. And my own explanation for it is because the Dubai tournament is owned by Dubai Duty Free. It's obviously a business for them. They're always voted best tournament in the 500 category and whatever. But at the end of the day, there isn't really local interest in terms of having kids play tennis. Mm-hmm. And they just don't go out of their way to try and spread it more. They do have the kids' day and all these obligatory kind of things you have in tournaments, but I've never felt that there's uh, there's an influx of Emirati kids, for example, picking up a racket and, play, and playing tennis. Whereas when I go to Doha, even though they're probably not at a level where they can be ranked or anything, I go and I feel that on the outside courts of the tournament, there are some Qatari kids playing because I feel the tournament there because it's owned by the Federation and run by the Federation. um, It is part of their plan. Like they're trying to use the tournament to have more kids play. And I do, that's one of the things I always feel is the difference between both tournaments. You mentioned uh, Fatma, who's obviously from Oman, just not. Mm -hmm. And so she gets wild cards into these tournaments, even though she's not Mm -hmm. from there. And we've seen the same thing with uh, players from the rest of the sort of Arab world in terms of like Tunisia and Morocco used to even mm-hmm. get wild cards into these Middle East tournaments. So does it feel like mm-hmm. this sort of, in terms of being like a country, quote unquote, that the region for what's considered a, a local player is pretty huge in the Middle East? <laughs> True. A lot of people don't get that at all because you have someone from North Africa who feels that he's entitled to a wild card in Doha or Dubai. Yeah. Uh, the reason for that is we kind of... Obviously, the whole region, we speak the same language. Um, we have a lot of similarities in terms of tradition and culture and everything. And at the same time, we don't have that many players. So we kind of pull them together and yeah. we always root for them somehow. Um, so, yeah, I mean... Do, 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 do crowds get behind like a, like a Jaziri when he's playing in yeah. Dubai? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we like, I kind of feel people do it even without even noticing that they're doing it. But uh, it's just because it's so rare for us to have an Arab player doing so well. So when it happens, everybody gets behind them, you know. So, yeah, yeah uh, Jaziri and Ons Jeber, the Tunisian girl, they they get a lot of support okay. when they're here. Yeah. Obviously, uh, Jaziri in particular has been in the news tennis news recently with his pullout in Montpelier when he was in his, from his first round match before it was over before he was uh, going to play duty sale of Israel in the second round um, mm-hmm. you know Malik pretty well um, mm-hmm. covering him and everything else so what, what do you what did you make of that sort of controversy and what should people I guess know of the sort of situation he's in to be honest as soon as I saw the draw I figured there might be 
something might happen. I wasn't sure what. Um, I can't speak for him, but in general, for for this particular situation, he said that he did have an elbow injury. He insists, and and so that was that. But in general, for me, as a just as an Arab journalist who is aware of everything that's happening, I always look out when I see a draw. I'm always going to look at that because. What a lot of people probably don't understand is that it's a difficult situation for the player no matter what. Because from this part of the world, no matter how... he Like, you're not a racist, you're not thinking about politics at all, you just want to do your job, you just want to play tennis, but there's always consequences, whether you like it or not. And I remember the last time when he had that call from the tennis fed, uh, Tunisian Tennis Federation asking him or basically forcing him not to play. It was against... Uh, Weintraub, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. it wasn't a challenger. So when that happened, I went on Melik's Facebook page and I saw the kind of comments he was getting from some just random extremist crazy people who were like threatening him, threatening his family if he plays that match. So a lot of people don't know that no ma- it's, it's, it's pressure. It's not pressure because he's agreeing with them. It's pressure because he's from a small country in Tunisia. Everyone knows who he is because he's famous there. And his family lives there. And people can actually hurt his family because, as you can see in the news these days, crazy things are happening. Yeah. And Tunisia is, only had a revolution like three years ago or four years ago. So security is the, it's the same as in Egypt. That's why I kind of relate because security is a bit dodgy in my yeah. country and in Tunisia right now. So he... He worries whether he admits it or not. It's it's a factor because there is a consequence if he plays a match like that. And also, he wants to play a match like that. I I totally believe that he wants to play a match because it, he doesn't he he wants to play like it's it's his job and he has nothing against anybody. I am sure anyone who knows Malik or has spoken to Malik is one of the nicest guys. He's just a guy who's always smiling and chill. But it's a terrible situation for him every time it's difficult. And for any other Arab player who gets into this situation, because there are crazy people out there who who just, you know, sometimes you think, okay, they're just comments, but what if they're not just comments? Yeah. It's, it's, hard, so, it's hard enough to take threats, you know, seriously. Exactly. It is a lose-lose situation because at the end of the day, when he when he doesn't play a match like that, I've seen also the other side of the comments just this past week. He needs to be sanctioned. He's a racist. He's this and this. And he doesn't want to be called a racist because he's not a racist. Yeah. Do you think there's anything that can be done, in by do you, anything should be done by the ATP in terms of they already banned? I guess ITF already banned the Tunisian Federation for one year. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think? I don't know. From from your side of uh, the world, what do you think? There's anything that should be or can be done in this situation, or is it just bigger than tennis? That's exactly what I was gonna say. It's just bigger than tennis. Yeah. It's bigger than tennis. Things are spiraling, spiraling out of control these days in more way than one. And 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 I think people need. It's it's an amazing idealistic notion that wow, sport transcends everything and politics don't mix with sports. You know what? This is the real world, and it does. And it does even if the player doesn't want it to. It's coming from outside. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, in my opinion, I mean. I'd, I've seen it affect so many people. Even, you know what, Fatma Nabhani once had Shahar Peer as her first round in Dubai. They had to go and play in a court. Like, Fatma should be happy that she's playing in Dubai and she can actually have home support and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But they had to go and play because of security reasons. They had to go and play away from the crowds. 
in a court that was basically one of the practice courts where Federer uses so no one can see him practice, they had mm-hmm. to play there because it was it was just dangerous for everybody. Yeah. Shahar Pair, um, I guess, uh, her, the big moments for her when she was first blocked from playing the tournament and then the next year brought back. And I think she made the final mm-hmm. the next year. Were you there for those years? I think I was here the year that she wasn't given, uh, they, they wouldn't give her a visa. Yeah, I think so, I was here for that year. Yeah, so what, but what, that was a totally different story because yeah. that was at a time where that basically at that single moment, Gaza was under fire and it was a big deal. So honestly, for me, this is all political. Yeah. So, so it wasn't like even when they, when they sanctioned the tournament, this is actually a country policy that transcends the tournament. You know yeah. what I mean? So it was just one of those things where it's all politics and there was there's a war going on whether people admit it or not, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah that was different, a little bit different. So there you go. In, in, you mentioned Federer. Federer mm-hmm. spends a lot of his time in Dubai, um, lives there. Is he is is him being there? Is he seen as I don't know, like a hometown boy at all? I think Federer is seen like that everywhere. <laughs> That's because true. people That's true. honestly, like you we're in London watching him play Murray and, and, and people are cheering more for him than for yeah. Andy. So, but obviously people love the fact that he lives here because he, you just see him everywhere. You can go to the mall and he's walking around with his family and he doesn't get mobbed like he would everywhere else. So I kind of understand why he, this place is appealing for him. Yeah, it, it's comfortable for him. But yeah, people, I mean, I live like five minutes away from him. So yeah, I, I got a lot of people here kind of feel that he is a hometown boy i guess <laughs> the one time i was in dubai it was only just on like a long airline layover for like 20 hours um but i did go into mm. the city and someone gave me a tour and they pointed out the building where he lived and it wasn't like it was just like an apartment in a big building it wasn't as like huge palace that i expected no but if you see the inside i mean okay. you can google it <laughs> the apartments there are really expensive and they're really beautiful they're really cool but yeah but it's on the beach you know so he has a nice beach view and he also kind of bought it like several years ago when and from year to year here you have like a thousand buildings that come up Mm -hmm. so um this was one of the first like really nice buildings that were built by the beach so 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 i'm just waiting for him to invite me over i guess (laughs) me too i mean we're practically neighbors you should should drop by with a you know a box of cookies or something and say look (laughs) a few toys for the twins and get in there exactly and you're also lucky in that you have pretty much every player comes through in the middle east at some point in the year true the this year the uh, the women's uh tournament in Dubai is the Premier 5 because it's alternating with Doha. Yeah, that's confusing. So that is very confusing. But last year, I remember Kevin Fisher was very nice enough to explain it to me. And basically, Dubai and Doha are going to be switching every year between Premier 5 and Premier status. And the week itself shifts, which is bad news for Doha because this year it had to coincide with the men's tournament in Dubai. Yeah. Uh, so that sucks for them, to be honest, because all the journalists, we usually travel these three weeks together, or obviously I either here and then I travel to, to Doha, but even all the tennis journalists that come from abroad, we used to have this nice three-week swing where we'd go to Doha, cover the women's, come to Dubai, cover the women's, and then have the men's week. But now, 
I'm pretty sure a lot of the journalists are not going to Doha because yeah. it's coinciding with the men's and they're just coming to Dubai for two weeks. So that's that's not good news for Doha at all because I kind of feel this year they're really going to have a lot less uh, coverage than they usually do. Okay, cool. Well, thanks very much for being Hasraim and have fun at the tournament. Thank you. Now it is time for our beloved Take a Number segment. Once again, we're going to use a random number generator to pick a number between 1 and 100 and talk about the man and woman who correspond to that number on the ATP and WTA rankings. You ready, Courtney? Always ready. Here we go. Do-do-do. 29. That's a reasonable number. Can't it is a reasonable number. Can't complain about that. Okay. Not a bad, not, not a bad person. Fair enough. How are we looking on the ladies' side, Courtney? We're good. We're Who good. We we're good. Who we got? We're good. Number 29 is a player I often call the Forgotten American. Okay. Um, she is, I mean, she's ranked number 29 up until a few weeks ago. She was the number one American that wasn't uh, Serena Williams or Venus Williams. Uh, number 29 is Varvara Lipchenko. Um Originally born in Uzbekistan, uh, is a nationalized American citizen, and probably doesn't get as much ink um, as uh, Madison Keys, Sloane Stevens, Taylor Townsend, et cetera, et cetera. We can talk about the reasons for that. Um, yeah, but uh, but yeah, she is she is our number twenty nine. Who's her dance partner? Her dance partner is taller than her, I think. Fairly lanky fellow uh, from the Czech Republic. Uh, I wouldn't compare her to him to Barbara Lepchenko. I, I would not do you as they say it is luke <laughs> it is it is lucas russell hey i can't believe i'm surprised yeah that's surprising all right so let's talk about varvara first i actually talked to varvara this week okay. i was going to do a story on her um before davis i'm oh, sorry before fed cup but then she wound up pulling out of the team um she had a bunch of health problems in yes australia she had some sort of, some sort of lung um infection that turned the sort of pleurisy thing and then sort of developed into a pneumonia and she, you know, got cleared by the doctors and then kept feeling worse days later. And yeah, kind of a mess. Now she's down in Argentina training where she does a lot of her training nowadays um, in the warmer weather there. And she slowly trains in Argentina. Yeah. Spends a lot of time training in Argentina. Huh? The more, you know, um, Is she playing Rio. Uh, I don't think so. No, I think she's next playing in Monterey. I mean, huh. Monterey Acapulco. And uh, maybe both, maybe just Monterey and then Indian okay. Wells. Um, okay. Yeah, but it, that goes to show that you mentioned when you were introing her, um, given her ranking, there's a weird sort of media blind spot in the U.S. media, I guess, about Varvara. What? And you mentioned how Madison, for example, has gotten a lot more attention at a, even while she was a lower ranking. And I think Sloan, when they were pretty close in the ranking, Sloan used to get a lot more attention than Varvara, too. Um, why do you, why do you think that is? And what does it say about the state of us tennis? Well, at the end of the day, I mean, it reflects on us. We're talking about ourselves. Yeah, exactly. We're talking about us. I mean, and by us, I mean, not just the media, but Americans in general, we really like winners. We are obsessed about players, uh, and athletes who either can win the neck, win the big thing, have already won the big thing, might one day win the big thing, um, in whatever sport you're talking about and what unfortunately that means is that there are going to be those players that kind of slip through the cracks i think um who are 
consistent players, good players, quality players. They may win titles. They may win, um, make finals. They may every once in a while pull off the big upset, but they may not be a player who, when you look at their game or their resume, you say they're going to potentially win a major or like a big tournament. Um, I think, unfortunately, for Varvara Levchenko, I think that that's where she falls, I think, within... And obviously, it doesn't help that, like, you're in a group of players that includes a Serena Williams, who's going to dominate most of our time anyway, regardless of where she is in the rankings. Yeah, and Venus, who's a seven-time champion. Exactly, Venus Williams as well. Now, when you start talking about the Sloane Stevens and Madison Keys, even a Coco Vandaway, um, these are players who obviously are, are quite young. Uh, Varvara Lepchenko is 28, I want to say. Yeah, 28 at this point. Has not won a WTA title, I believe. Yeah, that's correct. She made her first yeah. final last year in Seoul. Yeah, that's right. She made her first final last year, but hasn't won, hasn't broken through to win a WTA title. Um, you know, the big wins in her career, I mean, she's gotten a few wins over Agnieszka Radvanska, just matches up pretty well against her and um, things like that, but hasn't really done anything on the massive stage except that one year she made like what, like maybe third or fourth round at the at the U.S. Um, she made third round at the U.S. a couple times, and once she made oh, fourth, fourth round, round at French. the French, and which was in a big when she was in a big duel with Sloan actually for the final spot on the 2012 Olympic team, which she was. That's getting. right. That's uh, right. So that was sort of, and she came out of nowhere that spring. She was ranked yep. outside the top hundred, made semis of Madrid out of nowhere. And really rose up very quickly and hadn't been someone we'd ever talked about. Had been – had switched pretty quietly from Uzbekistan to U.S. and who she was representing, moved to Pennsylvania. And um, had been way outside the top 100. And we had just had such a critical mass of players in the U.S. that there wasn't – because she's not somebody who we see game-wise as being someone who can break through to win a Grand Slam, she gets less attention than players who have done less, which is right. – Maybe unfair. It just works that way throughout the rankings. Someone like Taylor Townsend, for example, now. Lauren Davis. Yeah, I was going to compare the two of them, actually. Uh, Taylor yeah. Townsend, who's, way, who's right around 100 in the rankings, hasn't won much on the tour level at all. Um, because we see her potential and her game, we think she can go on to do bigger things. She gets a lot more attention, a lot more focus and spotlight than players who are ranked much higher, who haven't... Uh, who we don't think have the same upside. People like uh, Lauren Davis, people like Allison Risk, people like... Christina McHale. Christina McHale, yeah. Christina McHale's right in there in sort of the same category as Levchenko. Um, McHale, yeah. McHale used to get more hype when she was younger and winning a lot more, but I think she's... When she faded. beat Caroline back-to-back weeks. Yeah, but... beat Caroline and, and Kvitova out in India Wells and stuff. And um, But yeah, but now it's just... It's, it's un- un- unfortunate for Levchenko, and I understand that she definitely... Um, probably resents it on some level that if she doesn't get this attention for results and she sees probably people like a Heather Watson, who she's a better player than get blanket coverage uh, because the British coverage is more focused on their own players or somebody like, um, I don't know, all the French players, they are much more attentive on their own country. And the way we focus on the sport in the U S is much more international much less domestic oriented, which is sort of right. ironic considering the rest of how we deal with things in the U.S. <laughs> um, but for tennis, we're pretty international at the current moment. So that's a good. That's a very good point, though, about the whole international aspect of things because you almost feel like I don't know. I, I, probably, if I were to go back and look at my writing for SI last year, I probably wrote about Belinda Bencic more than I wrote about Lipchenko. Yeah. Right. I mean, and. 
you probably wouldn't see that i think from a lot of other international press corps because most yeah yeah, most press corps are very very much like obsessed with their own crew but yeah i mean we kind of write about whoever's doing you know well on those three metrics who can win has won and maybe one day will like you know um that's kind of how we we gauge the sport that's why a nick curios gets a ton of of uh press ahead of a I don't know a Pablo Cuevas who's going to be number 23 in the world no one thinks that Pablo Cuevas is going to win a major no but we look at him Nick Kyrgios and we're like I don't know what your ranking is dude but we think that you might have something helps to have all the charisma and all that sort of stuff as well but um yeah that's 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 kind of I mean it's something that 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 um has kind of you know explained the media coverage of a David Ferrer mm-hmm. and it's true he doesn't get it for his he doesn't get it for his ranking and for as good as he ever was, because as good as he ever was, everybody's like, nah, you're not going to actually win the big one. So regardless of your ranking, it doesn't help. Again, that David Freire doesn't exactly light up the press room and yeah. doesn't give good copy. But, you know, he, he was a player that had a good story and everyone spoke incredibly highly of. But in terms of coverage, he never really got it at the level that you would think like a Stan Wawrinka gets. Right. No, that's true. Right? And and part of that is also, I mean, just in press room. And Lepchenko is very, very nice and very professional and accommodating with press. Um, not, she's very serious a lot of times about most things in tennis and career. And she's, uh, you know, has a very driven business centric attitude, which is totally fair and has worked well for her. And she's doing great this year. She made Brisbane semis and had a nice run at the Australian Open before she got sick and uh, kind of was very flat against Radvanska in the third round this year. Yeah. Um, who she's done well against in the past. And a lot of Polish reporters I know were really scared about Radvanska playing Lepchenko <laughs> before that match. Um, yeah, no, she's, uh, she's, and she's getting back towards top 20 again, which is where she got to the first time, um, I think in 2012, 2013, after that big breakout spring. So yep. good for her for going at it. And she's going to keep being someone who's there, probably going to be seated at the French. It's a good bet to win a few rounds, but hasn't really had that one or two big stage breakout wins. She's had some good Fed Cup wins. She was really good in that losing effort against Italy a couple years ago Yep, on the road. And actually, the U.S. Fed Cup team is going back on the road to Italy next, so probably Lepchenko will get a good <laughs> uh, a good role there again. But yeah, just it, it's a reflection not on really anything that she's done wrong, just on the way that Americans are focused media-wise, that she's not a bigger bigger star and i don't think she has a clothing sponsor at least hasn't for big stretches of her career yeah she hasn't i mean that's yeah nope that's definitely true and she she does fly under the radar and things like that but but yeah uh, exactly what you said it has no it's not really a reflection on her it's just a reflection on where she fits within the u.s tennis landscape and the amount of resources that we have and you know, the stories that Americans kind of care about, I guess, which is, again, players who have won, Venus, Serena, players who maybe can, which is, you know, Madison, Sloan, et cetera, Taylor. Um, so, it is, so it's definitely tough. Yeah. Speaking of players who have won things, Lucas Russell's only won one ATP title. He won it in Bucharest, I believe, a couple of years ago, right after his father died. It was very emotional week for him. But he will always, always be known as the guy who that one time beat Rafael Nadal in the second round of Wimbledon in 2012. Out of nowhere, ranked 100. One of the all-time performances by a player, I think, has I th- to be. 
yeah, that that's really the 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 key word is the performance aspect of that match because to beat Rafael Nadal at Wimbledon, okay, it happens, but no one talks about Steve Darcy. Yeah. The way that we talk about a Lucas Russell. No one talks about, you know, even like a Nick Kyrgios. Wasn't I the mean, same. It wasn't the same because Russell what he did, you know, there's an adjective. It was Russellian. It it was <laughs> absolutely like like the gods just all of a sudden like inspired him and gave him this ridiculous amount of just firepower in that right arm of his and some of the shots that he was going for. I mean, it was insane. I mean, that was one of the more insane, relevant matches uh, I've watched in a while where I, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing it or was, anything else. It was pretty stunning. And my only previous experience with Lucas Russell prior to that match was I had seen him before at the Australian Open earlier that year. Um, and I went out to his court to watch because he was on the verge of getting triple bageled. He was down 6-0, To Kohlschreiber? No, to Petschner. Philip Petschner. Oh, Petschner, yeah. And I went out to see if someone was actually getting triple bageled. That's a very rare event. Um, so I went out to go watch, and he wound up winning two games and then lost 6-2 uh, in the third. And then out of nowhere, this guy comes and plays the most inspired, unrelenting, zoning, you know, Whitney Houston triumphant moment of tennis thing you've ever seen. And blows Nadal off the court. And he very easily could have won in straights because he nearly won the first set, too. And then won the second and third. Nadal won the fourth. And then he came out and won an incredible fifth under the roof. Just playing so, so well. And this was at a time, also, when the Big Four were... It's hard to remember, but back uh, two and a half years ago, the Big Four were so, so much more dominant than they are now. And the stranglehold they had on the sport was much tighter. And he came out of nowhere and really stopped that against Nadal, who had made... Uh, Wimbledon final in his last three times there in the second round. So it was huge. Totally huge. It was totally huge. And um, I mean, what I will always remember from that Nadal match was the final game. And if you get a chance, like, just look it up. The Nadal, Rosal final game, Wimbledon, we'll we'll include a link. The whole match highlights are just incredible. The whole match. I mean, this is a match that went five sets and the the roof was open and the roof was closed. And it's a whole thing. And for this guy to to kind of step up and not get phased by all of that. He had so many opportunities to blink. Never did. Last game, how do you serve out Rafael Nadal at Wimbledon on center court? Ace, forehand winner, ace, ace. Yeah. It was sick. There was something like in the last... In his last, like, four service games, or four games he won, there were, like, no rallies more than three shots. Right. And he just – and he is a go-for-broke player. Um, he has <laughs> missed wildly. Like I said, he almost – he got nearly got triple bageled right before that. He's very hot and cold. Uh, plays really – I wouldn't say – I yeah, largely brainless ball basher tennis, but in, I don't mean that as a total, you know, slur. I think that he's uh, – Someone who's just a pure, aggressive, fearless player, and a risk-reward doesn't always work out for him. Uh, he actually got into the weird denouement of this happened last year at Wimbledon. They played in the third round, and he was winning, and then blinked. Yeah. Unlike the time before, he did blink, and Nadal came back to win in four when he was not playing very well. Nadal was playing much better against Rosal when he lost to him than when he beat him. Um, yeah. Yeah. So not all sequels are great, but he's that, that one match will go down really is just an absolute for the vault all-time best of five tennis channel upsets <laughs> for sure for now till forever but then also you kind of had 
a bit of a Russell moment in the press room, Ben. A <laughs> rather a rather famous moment nowadays. Like it, you know, I mean, this is this was a Ben special. Famous and it's gone viral. Famous really only because of Ricky Diamond, who's still obsessed with this <laughs> and the friends of Ricky, but Ricky Ricky loves this moment so much. I'll put in some audio of I asked uh, after later that summer at the US Open, uh, Burditch played really, really well, like we talked about he can to beat uh, Roger Federer in four sets, played fearless, undaunted tennis, and his first big win in a while it was for Burditch, and then he lost, kind of flopped in the semis against Murray. But after that match, I asked if there was something in the Czech mentality about uh, fearlessness or something that helped contribute. Maybe not the best question of all time, but Burditch's level of offense was pretty hilarious. Big upsets this year besides for this win was Lucas Russell beating the Do you think there's something in the Czech mentality that sort of makes you guys maybe less afraid of big wins in other countries? Well, I just hope that you're not comparing me with Le Russell. <laughs> Don't you? Or do you? No, I'm not, I'm not, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it's No, you did. You just said that there was a big upset and Russell would beat Nadal and then you mentioned my match here. Okay. Okay, good. Uh, so first of all, I don't think that uh, we are in the same position, that uh, it's actually that big upset, but all right, you said that. And uh, well, I don't know what else to say. I mean, is it something wrong that we are from Czech and beating big, guy, big guys or no? Good. Okay. It's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And as I've learned later, apparently, those two just really don't like each other at all. <laughs> Who knew? I mean, no one knew at the time, but it was like, How would we oh, know that? Oh, yeah. You guys don't like each other. Okay. We thought we, I mean, I think there's this kind of um, sense within tennis that like, oh, if you guys are Davis Cup teammates, you'll be cool, right? Like, you're not going to, like, even if you don't like each other, like, you'll be publicly, you'll put on the brave face and yeah. whatever, but. Not Thomas Burdick, That's which how- goes a little bit into our discussion of him last week. <laughs> which is interesting that um, you mentioned that for some reason I immediately flashed to when Lena was asked about Peng Shui at the Australian <laughs> Open this year. And Amazing. she just she just like now she's out of the game. She had very few to start with, but Lena has completely run out of fucks to give and was like, Oh Peng Shui, eh, yeah, forget it. It was amazing. I I think I was sitting next to you, obviously, at the thing, and I think when she said that, I may have burst out laughing. <laughs> I, I know I did. Awkwardly, like no one else was laughing, but I laughed really loud. Um, that Lena thing was amazing. No one else was really paying attention, but like the amount of like you know, the, she could not have possibly cared less about these answers. No, she's like, oh yeah, Peng Shui, you're like countrywoman friend, right? And she's like, oh, forget her or something. Yeah. Just like no, she said, what was it? They were like, oh. Uh, Peng Shui, they were going through the draw and asking Lina to do analysis. And they're like, oh, Peng Shui, like, you know, it must have been nice to have, uh, you know, other Chinese players like Zhang Zhe and, you know, you must uh, get along. I mean, talk about that. And Lina said something that was basically like, screw her. Like, why are we talking about her? Like, it was something like, oh, she's, she basically no commented. Yeah. That's what she did. Yeah. She's like, mm, next question. <laughs> it was like, whoa. It was pretty great. So Lucas Russell, yeah, he he has that about him. And he did really usher in, I do think, on some level, the Vavrinka was a much bigger move on a much bigger level, winning the title and everything. But I really do think the first significant crack in the Big Four armor was delivered by Lucas Russell that day. I totally disagree. You disagree? Robin Soderling. Oh, well, that was, yeah, that kind of came and went, though. The, the armor 
fixed itself after that. But, but that, was back in, that was back in showed how to do it consistently. Swing big, hit big, go for it, don't blink. I mean, like what Russell did was it was soddling at the French Open. Yeah. It's just that 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 it was Russell, more out of his skin. It, it was more explosive, I think, with what Russell did because he just blew the ball past Rafa. But um, not that Sodling didn't, but you know, on clay, a little bit different. But yeah, no, I think I think Sodling to me is still the guy who kind of opened it up. I mean, you can argue Del Potro as well, but Del Potro kind of had the. You felt like that was a little bit more of an argument of oh, a possible big five. Like, you know, like a consistent guy who'd yeah. be up there was like, Soddling was just like, no, lightning in a bottle, this is how you do it. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, Soddling did get up the top five at one point later. He did, he did. But it just it just felt different. Like, I felt like when Delpo did what he did at the, the US Open or, you know, whatever, yeah. that it was a little bit more, okay, this is a long-term thing. Yeah. Like, but, this guy is just that good. Whereas with Soddling, it felt like, at least initially when he did it, it was like, holy crap. Like, it that's was how more, you do it. It was more about the belief and about the... Yeah. The yeah lack of intimidation, yep. which so many people have had. And Soderling and Russell are similar that way, and they both didn't mind getting under Nadal's skin at Wimbledon in their various matches against him there. I mean, it, yeah, there's a playbook, and they they I definitely will agree with that. There was some definite co-authorship there by them. So for sure, Russell, if you ever want to see the ball get hit really big, reliable guy for that. Hasn't done as much on a big level since, but definitely a scary name in draws for sure. If he's on, he loses a lot early too. Remember, he, was, he was supposed to play. Sorry, people will remember his name. Oh yeah, years to come. Like when you say Lucas Russell, everyone will remember that match that night that, or you know, and that happening. And uh, you know, not every single player who ever picks up a racket and becomes a top one hundred player. He was ranked number ninety nine. No, 100? one hundred. Number one hundred. Number one hundred that day. But not every top one hundred player can say that. Not every top twenty player has that match. Right. Where, like, well, just to be able to say, like, people remember the fact that you picked up a racket. Yeah. There are going to be players that you're just never going to remember, and Lucas Rosal will not be one of them. There you go. So those were our number 29s, Barbara Lepchenko and Lucas Rosal. We hope it was as memorable as they are. <laughs> At least Lucas. So we're going to wrap up the show with our Rant Rave segment. Before we do, we encourage all of you to... Follow the show when we're not actually talking in your ears by following us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can subscribe to the show on your iTunes or other podcasting app of choice or RSS feed. And if you have a question for an upcoming show, you can email them to us at no challenges remaining at gmail.com. And we do have a stockpile of questions from you guys. We will get to as soon as we have time allows so don't worry if you haven't heard yours yet it will likely be coming up soon uh courtney why don't you lead us off with your rant and or rave okay today i have a rave oh good i'm gonna gonna rave just because you know it's valentine's day weekend people seem to care about that as being a thing um but it's supposed to be you know positive vibes right ideally I think there's a lot of bitterness on Valentine's Day for most people. Yeah, but I just think that, like, if it's bitter, I mean, I just, I used to be one of those people who got really bitter and sarcastic on Valentine's Day. But nowadays, I'm kind of like, you know what? It's fine. Like, what's to be bitter? Like, why throw that negative energy out there? It just, it seems really exhausting and pointless. That's what I say. Okay. But anyways. Good for you. You're welcome. Um, So, yeah, but my rave 
is um, if you have Amazon Prime, you should definitely watch Transparent. Okay. Um, it obviously it won a bunch of awards during the Golden Globes, and um, it's one of those um, Amazon Prime TV shows, which they're they're starting to do more and more um, in terms of optioning shows specifically just for Amazon. So if you're a Prime member, you can watch it for free, and it's streaming there. But it stars um, Jeffrey Tambor, who we know as the uh, patriarch of the Bluth family from Arrested Development. Um, it also has Gabby Gabby Hoffman. Um, Jay Duplass, who's Mark Duplass's brother. Uh, Judith Light is in it as well. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's incredibly good. I finally downloaded it and watched it on the plane coming back from Melbourne. And it's there's only like 10 episodes. But basically, it's about um, a family, a Jewish family in Los Angeles that are fairly well off, it seems. Um, and the father, who's retired, who is Jeffrey Tambor, um has uh is transgender basically um and so he kind of is obviously married and has the kids and he comes out to the kids and um is going through his transition and the kids are reacting but it's really i mean it is about that but it's not just about that it's um a really interesting look at a, a family and i think they do the family relationships incredibly well um gabby hoffman jay duplass and i can't remember the name of the oldest sister um the three of them are tremendous siblings um just really messed up human beings <laughs> across the board but there's a very it's very natural how they interact with each other anyways the show totally deserves every accolade that it receives um it handles a lot of the questions about transgender people in the community um really well um it's an emotional show it's a very laugh out loud funny show it's a heartbreaking show um and it's really well written well directed it's just um a plus so if you're looking for something to watch or if you want something good to watch and it's only 30 minute episodes so it's pretty easy to get through highly recommend it very very good show there you go i'm gonna do something a little more current eventsy than usual in that i am very sad that brian williams is gone because i thought he was really really awesome at doing the news and i understand why he is gone for those of you who don't follow this he it was the nightly news anchor for NBC News for over a decade, I think, and told some stories from a decade ago experiences in Iraq that sort of spiraled way into the realm of fiction from factual in terms of exaggerating his efforts. Anyway, and so he got suspended, which is all probably deserved. But just in general, he was so such a welcome presence behind the desk. He was so self-deprecating and funny and sarcastic. And maybe these things aren't things that news anchors should be. But I don't know. I had fun watching him, and I just hope that he takes over for Jon Stewart when the time comes, because I think it'd be a perfect, seamless commentary on the world, and I think that would work out. And they kind of lost their jobs on the same day. Oh, Jon Stewart announced that he was leaving on the same day. So I just think it would be very tidy if that happened. Other nominees for that job are also welcome for the Daily Show job, but in general, with what Brian Williams showed he can do on 30 Rock and all his other crossover appearances, for me, it, may, it would be, I don't know, nice. Even though I understand why he's not a sympathetic character to some people now. But I thought he was very good. So that's my more plea than rant rave, I guess. Fair enough. There you go. I totally agree with you. Yeah. I'm a I'm a Brian Williams defender on this one. I just not think... Def- that- not defender in terms of, like, I defend what he did. 
but a defender insofar as like let's judge the man's body of work yeah like this thing but, like in general yeah. if everyone who told an anecdote on letterman had it fact checked yeah. it would be almost no one would pass lie detector tests on that i'm not saying obviously he's held to a higher standard because he's a news person i totally think the consequences are to be expected and probably deserved but i just think before that he was super tremendous so hoping he remains on television in some way somehow he's a awesomely talented person he on is. the camera so hope to, hopefully his skills will land him on his feet somewhere and with that we'll say goodbye to episode 99 we're thinking that we might stall some before episode 100 because we want it to be huge we're gonna do episodes they just might be not number 100 we just not we're not gonna actually call them episode 100 <laughs> we'll buy some time part of, it is, part of it's a logistic thing i'm in transit early next week or not yeah early next week where so are you going courtney i am fingers crossed going to rio That's exciting. Uh, for a few days um to cover the rio open and then after that i'll be going to new york uh for vacation which is exciting but it does mean that i'm going from 100 degrees and incredibly humid to minus 15 to 20 degrees and snowing in the matter of 24 hours not entirely sure how my body's going to react to that i have a guess that it's not going to react well but um it's for vacation so what the fuck do i care um yeah so it's good uh but yeah but yeah so i'm in transit so that causes a bit of a wrinkle because we are trying to get episodes up on Tuesdays. Um, and also we want to, we want to get it right. I know episode hundred is like a lot of pressure. It is. Once we started numbering episodes, 100 was always going to be a thing. This is true. So true. Yeah. So if you guys have suggestions for episode hundred in the meantime, we're going to think we're thinking right now, we're going to try to do it at Indian Wells. I feel like it's a good one to be together for. Exactly. So that would buy us. Uh, that's like two, three weeks. That's like three weeks away. So I'll have two sort of stalling mini episodes of some sort um, in the meantime, and then episode 100. Um, yeah, if you guys have suggestions, thoughts, requests, comments, whatever, let us know. And we'll try to incorporate as much of that as possible and make it a huge, spectacular event, event podcasting. Yes, we would like it to like not be about tennis, but it can be. But I mean, you know what I mean? Like it can be about tennis, but it doesn't have to be about the thing that happened that week. Right, we don't need to recap Antwerp and Rotterdam. Exactly. Not that they weren't lovely, but, you know, we're trying to go big here, folks. Big, huge. Ambition. We're shooting for the stars. We're trying to Monet Davis the whole thing. There you go. And we might twirl past Kevin Hart, or we might just get a home run hit off us by a 13-year-old. It's possible. Both things happen to her. You know, yep, yep. That's the life of Monet. If it was easy being Monet, everybody would be. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we'll say bye, guys. See you later. Every girl problems off a bad for you, son. I got 99 problems and bitch ain't one. Woo! Every girl problems off a bad for you, son. I got 99 problems and bitch ain't one. <laughs>